0: Yeah? Okay. Well it's great to see you in church. Okay? We get in now. I'll keep talking, I'm sure you'll get that sorted. For those of you who are though right. Are you there? For those of you who are visiting us today. We um, have been going through a series in, um, in the story of David, King David, and uh, because it's quite a long story, as I've already mentioned before now, that King David, or Shepherd David, um, Musician David, and then eventually King David, takes up more of the Bible than anyone else apart from Jesus, more is spoken uh, about David than anyone else in the Bible apart from Jesus himself. And so there's so much in the story that it's very easy going through a series like this to miss out a bit and miss out part of the story. And I was going to miss out this next little section in the story because it seems an interlude, seems not essential, but um, (coughs) then I reconsidered and I thought, no, rather than skip bits. Uh, maybe we'll cut, this, cut the series in half and do the second half of David another time. So we're going to look at a part of the, uh, of the story that initially I thought, hmm, what's it got to tell me about? What's it got to say? But I think it's got a lot to say to us all. And by way of introduction, let me ask you the question, how much time did you spend if you were a parent choosing a name for your children? Was it, was it something that you spent a long time on or was it something you just picked a name out of the air? Well, let me ask you another question. How many of you know the meaning of your own name? Do you know... Most of you know the meaning of your own name? Well, so you've done a little bit of work on that. You know the meaning of your own name. For those who are unaware, the meaning of the name Barry means good-looking, handsome, um, tall, talented, and... and It doesn't. Oh, uh, I'm not allowed to lie. Okay, but whether you know the name, the meaning of your name or not, well, certainly in the Bible, names were very significant... And especially when God renamed a person, which he did on several occasions. And we're going to look at a person uh, today who was given a name, not by God, but by the parents. And you say, well, how on earth was this person given this name? Or why was he given this name? You'll understand that many of the Bible names were given prophetically. That uh, God somehow or other enabled the parents to choose a name for that child which prophetically, was going to be worked out in their lives. Obviously, Jacob is a good example of that, who was a twister, who was a deceiver, and that certainly worked out in his life, and his, his name was changed to Israel um, later on in the Bible. But this person that we're going to talk to about it today, his name was called Fool. His name was called Nabal, which means fool. Can you think of any possible reason why a parent would call their child fool? I don't know. But certainly it may not have been because in the Hebrew language the word fall, it didn't work out that way in another language. Certainly the word Jezebel, if you know uh, Elijah fought against Jezebel and Ahab, Jezebel in her language, um, Sidonian meant primrose, in the Hebrew language it meant dunghill, so I suppose it could well be that it was a a different language. But certainly the person we're going to talk about and the part of the story that we're looking at this morning is when David meets Nabal, who's married to Abigail, who is going to uh, be a a fantastic role model. So we're going to talk about David meeting Abigail, the wife of Nabal. We're going to read the story in a little while, but many of you know the story. You know that Nabal is a foolish man. He lacks wisdom. He lacks respect, honour, understanding. His self-discipline is completely up the creek. There's absolutely no courtesy with him. And his sense of awareness, the fact that his life could have been in danger for the foolish acts that he engages in, he's totally out of it. And that's why he's called a fool. And we read the story and you'll see. Some of you know the story well. Others, this may be the first time you've read the story of Dable. But he's called a fool and he, he acts like a fool. No humility at all. The second person in the story is a beautiful woman and probably this woman was married to Nabal. We wouldn't have chosen that husband. Probably it was an arranged marriage. And this was a very wise woman. Her name was Abigail, a wise and a beautiful woman. And we're going to see in the story that her works were good, her words were better, and her wisdom was the best. And uh, she is an incredible lady in this story here. And then, of course, the third person, person of this uh, story is David. And we're going to find that David... In, in the chapter that we're just about to read, um, we, the, the opening verse of the chapter is that his role model, his, the person he looked up to, the person who prayed for him, Samuel, actually dies. And that could have had a huge effect on this man, because the prophet Samuel had prayed over David and said, you are going to become king. And as soon as he prophesied over and anointed him with oil that he would become king, as soon as that happened, rather than things get better for him and he takes the throne, it gets worse and worse. He's then chased by King Saul right around the desert. We're still ringing here, so I don't know how we're going to cope with that. but. he, life just gets a hell of a hell of a, a, a situation. And up until now, until the time of this reading, he's been running from King Saul from about, for about five or six years. Now let me ask you, before we go any further, has God said something to you, and you've said, God, how long before you actually fulfill the prophecy that you've given over my life? Or how long before you actually answer the prayer that I've been praying for a long time, Lord? Does anybody apart from me get frustrated with God at times? Does anybody say, God, I wish you'd speed things up a bit? I tell you, this has been going on this has been dragging on, Lord. You said to me, You anointed me with oil in front of front of all my brothers, David said. He could have said anyway. This is five or six years ago, Lord, and all I've done since then is run for my life from King Saul, who's tried to spear me, who's tried to kill me, and I've I've gathered a, a bunch of discontents, you know, at the cave of Adullam, that group has now turned into a group of 600 fighting men with their families. I've got to feed these people. He's in the wilderness, where is he going to find food for these people? he's asking folks for food and we're going to find in the story here that he's uh, he's giving protection for a, a particularly wealthy landowner down in Judah and and that, that's going to be an important area because he's not king over that group yet and david nearly makes a mistake here anybody apart from me made mistakes Anybody apart from me, you've got a little bit weary of God not seeming to answer your prayers as quickly as you would like him to have done, and you've possibly taken things into your own hands. Anybody made that silly mistake? We're going to find in the next few chapters that King David, probably out of frustration, God, how long before you answer my prayer? This seems unfair, Lord. Lord. And this Saul has now got ganging up on him and he's he's saved Saul's life. He could have killed Saul because he tore... Remember the last story? I know that uh, I've been away for a couple of weeks, but the last time he was in a cave and he could have killed Saul, tears off a bit of his cloak instead, and his his men are saying, you idiot! You could have become king here! Just get rid of Saul! And David said, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed." And how to frustration? David is going to make a couple of bad calls here. a couple of decisions that, if they'd have gone through, wouldn't have been good decisions. And one of these is here in this story, because we're going to find, as we read, that he asks. Nabal, who's a wealthy landowner, and it's sheep shearing time, so he's got lots of food there, lots of produce, and he's protected this man from the marauders. And he says, can I have some of your food? And Nabal says, on your bike. And David gets angry. And he grabs hold of 400 of his men, keeps 200 away back, looking after the stuff, and he goes, and he's just going to go and annihilate Nabal. But fortunately, a wise woman... I'll tell you, there's plenty of biblical illustrations where wise women stepped in and stopped stupid men doing some stuff. <laughs> and I might say, ever since then, history has repeated itself. Some of you women have been very wise when we have been impetuous and we've, we've decided to take things into our own hands, but you've said, hold on boy. And David was about to take things into his own hands and, and probably cause himself a, a lot of political damage when he's later going to become king because this is a, a landowner down in, in the, the, another part of Israel. And this wise woman stops him from making a foolish mistake. So David is the one who's the third person of this. He's a, a teachable servant. He's going to listen. He's prepared to listen. Um, is it possible to skip to the next slide? Uh, so we'll, we'll skip the next slide, Okay. Excellent. Let's read the story first, shall we? We're going to look at five biggest falls in the Bible. That's what we are in, in, in my sermon this morning. But we're going to start by reading this story, 1 Samuel chapter 25. So if you have a Bible, I've sort of tried to paint the picture there. This is the, the part that I would have missed out, but I thought, no, God, we shouldn't miss it out. So now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned him, and, uh, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. And David would have thought, God, Samuel, he's gone now. When, when am I going to become king? So David then moved down into the desert of Mahon, or Paran, if you've got the authorised version. And a certain man in Mahon, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he, he was shearing in Carmel. That's a lot of a lot of animals. He was a, a, a rich man. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calabite. Was surely and mean in his dealings. His name means fool. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, go up to Nabal, to Carmel, and greet him in my name, and say to him, long life to you, good health to you and to your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time, and when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore be favourable toward my young men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. And when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men uh, turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, Put on your swords. So they put on their swords and David put on his. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail. Couldn't tell Nabal because he wasn't a person ready to listen. He was a fool. So they went to the, the wife, they went to Abigail. David has sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings, but he's hurled insults at them. Yeah, these men were very good to us. They didn't mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, um, they were a wall around us. They protected Nabal's folks. Okay. So verse 18, Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five, a lot of stuff. Okay. She told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Now she was riding her donkey into a mountain ravine. There were David and his men descending toward her. And she met them. And David had just said, It's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey, bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is fool. And folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. Now since the Lord has kept you my master from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands as surely as the Lord lives and as you live may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offence for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live, and so on. David, 32, said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you here to meet me today. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for the keeping, of keeping me from bloodshed, this day, and avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Go, in, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. The rest of the story is that she goes back home. She finds her husband drunk because she's just reveling in his supposed wealth. Rather than speak to him that particular evening, she waits till the morning. She says, Listen, husband, you were just about to be annihilated. David has brought four hundred of his fighting men. You were just about to lose your wife, your, your life, and everything with it. He has some kind of—I don't know—seizure, whether it's a stroke or a heart attack. We don't know. Out of fear, and in, within a week, he's dead because God had taken him. And David, in his wisdom, invites Abigail to be his wife. What an incredible story! Just picking out of that story, a couple of things there before we move on here. Nabal means fool, he didn't recognise King David. His wife Abigail, her name means source of delight. She said to her, of her husband, his name is fool. And I in thinking about what we should get out of this chapter today in the next 15 or 20 minutes before we close. What does it mean to be a fool? Well, I can give you the uh, definitions of New Testament words. Vine says, a fool is a person without reason, he's senseless or she's senseless or unworthy, lacking in understanding, one who does not govern his lusts. That's what one particular commentator, Vine, says about a fool. The book of Proverbs says an awful lot about fools and wisdom. In the book of Proverbs, we find that whoever spurns his parents' discipline or whoever spreads slander or whoever is hot-headed and reckless even when they're driving their car, whoever is quick to quarrel or whoever trusts in himself or whoever doesn't learn from his mistakes, whoever talks too much or delights in airing his own opinion, all of these people are called fools in the book of Proverbs. Let me read the list again. Whoever spurns his parents' discipline, in other words, disobeys their parents continually, whoever spreads slander, is hot-headed or reckless, is quick to quarrel, trusts in himself, doesn't learn from mistakes, or just basically talks too much, airing your own opinion, the book of Proverbs calls that group of people, or individuals in that group, fools. So, for the next little while, can we just discuss together what it means to be a fool and what it means to be wise. You've heard me mention before now, the story of, uh, set in, what, three or four or five hundred years ago, of the village fool who used to come and folks travelled from miles around to offer him coins because it's told that if you were to offer him the equivalent of, say, a five-p piece or a ten-p piece or you to offer him a fifty-p piece, The village fool always took the smaller amount. And of course, as a result, many, many people in the village and from all around came and offered him this small amount or large amount. In the end, he became very wealthy. Who was the fool? You see, man's wisdom is very different from God's wisdom. And what the world calls wise very often is foolish. And this man, Nabal, he seemed very wise because he was a successful businessman. How many know that because you're successful and rich, does that make you wise? It's a very big difference between success and wisdom. And you may have the world's possessions, you may have earned the world's possessions, you may not have inherited it, you may be wealthy today, but wisdom may be very sadly lacking in your life. But God puts high prestige on wisdom. And he says, listen... In fact, Jesus, one of the only ones that Jesus ever spoke of as being a fool, as we'll look at in a little while, was the person who said, listen to me, I am so successful in my business. And he was an agriculturalist. He's got his barns full of produce. He said, my barns are so big, I've got to tear them down and build other ones. And, and uh, I, I'm just, in the world's eyes, he was very successful. But Jesus looked upon him and says, you're a fool. Tonight, your soul is required of you. Now, I don't know who you are today, some of you, many of you I do know. But let me ask you, are you storing up treasures in heaven this morning? Are you acting as a wise person? Or have you been duped foolishly duped by the world's standards that says, as long as you're successful, as long as things are going well, as long as you have proved yourself and you've climbed the ladder, that all of a sudden you've got something. I want to tell you that God looks upon our wisdom in a very different light to the world looks looks at it. There's some spiritual paradoxes in the New Testament. Certainly, one of them is that the wisest person has to sometimes become a fool let me give you a couple of other paradoxes that means the paradox is, is two truths that stand against each other and it seems that they're contradictory but somehow or other they're true let me give you some paradoxes life is lost by being kept and saved by being lost what does that mean? Well, Jesus is the one that says, if you want to save yourself, you've got to lose it. If you want to lose your life, you've got to save it. In other words, it's a paradox. You can't understand it. But i tell you this, if you want to know what true life is all about this morning, then the key is losing your life to other people. Therefore, you can gain it in the Spirit. Another paradox, we are weakest when we are strongest and strongest when we are weakest. The world would say, how foolish. But Paul said, when I'm weak, then God's strength is infused into my life. And if you feel weak this morning, you're on the front line for the blessing of God. It's when you're full of yourself, it's when you think that you've got it all together, and when your intellect and your skills and your talents, you think that you've got it there. Then maybe that's your weakest point. Because when you are weak, then you become strong. Is it a little wonder that some of you struggled over some weakness or other in your flesh maybe. And you've got a thorn in your flesh or you've got something or other that seems to drag you down and God doesn't seem to answer your prayer. And all you've got from God is that my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. We climb highest when we stoop lowest. That's another little paradox. That if I want to be anything, if I want to do anything that's going to be of any lasting value then the first thing that God will require of me is that I humbly come before him and human beings. We all want to achieve, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to achieve, nothing wrong with wanting to get promoted in work, but we climb highest spiritually when we stoop lowest, when we're willing to humble ourselves before the living God, who in due time will exalt us. And then, of course, he who is wisest must become a fool, which we will just develop in a little while in the next few minutes let me give you five different falls that I can identify, the first I would consider is the atheist fall the book of Psalms says the fool has said in his heart there is no God it almost seems now we're living in an age when the sign, the badge of your wisdom is to almost say well I don't believe in God I don't believe in a supernatural being. Or, you may believe, but you just, you may be, maybe not an, uh, an atheist, you may be just be an agnostic, and, and somehow or other it's the badge of pride now to almost stand up and say, I don't believe in God. <laughs> How foolish. In the times when I used to do personal witness, and I haven't do, don't do so much of that out in the, out in the streets, just witnessing to folks and, and just talking to folks about Jesus. And folks would come up to me and say, I don't believe in God. And one of my answers would be, well, what kind of God don't you believe in? And then I found out that natural fact the God that they don't believe in, I don't believe in either. If you understand what I'm saying. Because they've got a, a twisted view of what God is. Well, the God who sent all those Jews to the gas chambers. The God who's allowed all those folks, folks in Pakistan to be swept and, and, and killed away. Do you know, I don't believe in the God that did that. I believe that God does allow certain, certain things, but let me tell you this, I believe in a God of love, as well as justice. And He does do stuff that I sometimes question, but let me tell you this, I don't believe in the God that many others seem to... This this, this judgmental God and this this... I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell. I say, well, I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell either. If you go go to hell, you do that out of your own choice. God doesn't send you there. God created hell, and we'll talk about hell when we get into our series in Revelation later on in the year. God created hell, certainly, but he created hell for the devil. And anybody who wants to follow the devil will follow him to his final destination. But he didn't create it for people. You go to hell out of your choice. Oh dear, that's a bit heavy, isn't it? But anyway, let me tell you this. The atheist fool, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And there's other verses there. I've been on holiday. One of the things I love on holiday is just to be in nature and just to see the splendour and the beauty of God's creation. And I personally believe that every flower that I've seen this this holiday, every beautiful mountain in the Lake District, every lake and every, every... personal, beautiful piece of nature, has been a creation of God. I love that that quote from Tertullian, if we can put it up here, uh, a couple of centuries uh, after Christ. Nature is the teacher. The soul is the pupil. One flower of the hedgerows by itself, and I don't say a flower by the meadows, in other words he's saying just an ordinary weed. One weed, one flower of the hedgerows. One shell of any sea you like, and I don't say a pearl from the Red Sea, any shell, and we walked by the sea and picked up some shells to this, this holiday. One feather of a moorfowl, and I don't mean a peacock, somebody, some fine bird, just any feather from any of the smallest of birds. Will they speak to you of a mean creator, said Tertullian? No, what he's saying is, if you want to see God, just look around you. Just look around you just take a walk through the meadow, have a little walk across the park and recognise that there's a God who creates. Now we can discuss whether that was literal days or whatever, but the truth of the matter is he creates. He is the instigator. And so the atheist fall is the first fall. And I like to say it's very, very unlikely that there are atheists in this room here But it's also very unlikely that there's folks in this room who haven't met folks who say, "I'm an atheist." You've heard of that person who said, "I'm an atheist, thank God." (laughs) Well, let me say this: It's almost as I'm repeating myself. It's almost as if it's in vogue now to say you don't believe in God. How foolish and how clever of the devil! How clever of the devil! to get philosophical minds working in such a way and this Dawkins chap who's constantly on our televisions and what have you. Then there's the modernist fool. Can I give you that person? This is how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe, said Jesus. And the modernist fool, yes, well, he's got some kind of belief, And our Bible colleges, unfortunately, are full of teaching now, whereby, in fact, you can't go higher than GCSE. Uh, You go into A-level and you go into, certainly, diploma or or degree. You have to start pulling the Bible to pieces. And one one very popular way is to say, well, supernatural things can't be true, and so you cut out stuff that's supernatural in the Bible. Let me tell you this. If you did that and you got your pair of scissors, you don't get much of the Bible left. Because most of it is supernatural. Most of it cannot be explained by human intellect. It has to be recognised that God, a supernatural being, is at work. But these clever whiz kids who have now got their, you know, their their whatever diplomas and degrees, they say, oh, well, you don't really believe that anymore, do you? (laughs) You don't. But I want to tell you that all scripture is inspired by God. And profitable for teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness. And though it may offend my intellect, whether I'm offended by it is immaterial. And certainly God doesn't say, throw your brains out the window, come let's reason together, But the Bible says is in Isaiah. Yes, we can discuss things, yes we can reason things through, but certainly the Bible is a book to be believed so this is the one who, this modernist fool that believes in God but can't believe the Bible. Let me tell you this, the Bible is more up to date than tomorrow's newspaper. And if we were to take time to, to, to look at this book, we'd find that certainly it can be totally relied upon. So there's the modernist fool, but then there's the sinning fool. And the sinning fool goes to church. The sinning fool comes to church and sometimes take communion. We take communion every other week in our church here. And, uh, and they think that as long as they do their religious bit, as long as they come to church on Sunday, God has now been included in their life and for an hour and a half, maybe two hours, hour and a half in our church here, uh, you, can, you can put God in his little box and in his little slot but for the rest of the week you can do what you like. Some folks go even further than that and they say, oh well, God will forgive us, that's his trade, therefore if I sin more, he forgives more, therefore I'm doing God a favour. Well, we wouldn't go that far, but I know plenty of Christians who've got to that place where they thought, well, God doesn't really mind because he's such a forgiving God. But the book of Proverbs tells me fools make a mock at sin. Let me tell you that sin does an awful lot of harm to our lives, and it shouldn't be treated lightly in another sermon. For another time we would discuss that sin degenerates and sin damages and sin divides and sin destroys and sin spoils and it separates and it seduces and it sentences us to death. But you'll know that if we were taking communion this morning, you'll know that if we have sinned and we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's always a way back after sin and however bad that sin is, if we are willing to humble ourselves and come to God, God will forgive us. But let's not play with sin because the way of the fool seems right to him. But that foolish way will lead us into sin. Two more fools. You've got the complacent fool, very much like the sinning fool. And Jesus spoke of this person, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the complacent fool says, I'll wait until tomorrow. At the moment I'm too busy, engaged in my business, engaged in my family, engaged in my social life, engaged in, in life in general, that I'll, put, I'll, I'll get right with God at some stage in the, in the future. I'll, I'll start serving Jesus a little bit more fervently at some time in the future. We don't know about the future. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Today is the day of salvation. And some would say that Jesus, using the illustration of the rich young ruler who I've already mentioned, was thinking of Nabal when he actually gave that story. Remember Nabal? Remember the rich young ruler? For today your soul is required of you. He was successful business and what have you. And maybe Jesus had Nabal in his mind when he was describing This fool who hadn't prepared for tomorrow. And by the way, you can invest in heaven. You can invest in heaven. And some of you have done a lot of investing in heaven for our building fund, and we appreciate that. And we're keeping you up to date. You've been giving money to God. And it's like we're investing in heaven, Jesus said. So the complacent fool. But I conclude my meditation. Two more minutes, please. On the fool for Christ's sake. Because in the New Testament, we find some lovely words. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. If you can click that button there, Sammy, that would be great. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. See, in this church, we preach Jesus crucified. In this church, we preach that unless you come to Christ who died on a cross for you, you're hopeless and helpless and lost. That every one of us needs to come to the foot of the cross. And whether you did that some time ago and you've been drifting and you know you haven't been right with God for some little while, you've come to visit church today. We are thrilled to have you here and we're not pointing the finger at you. Because there isn't one person in this room that hasn't drifted away from God. But we're glad you're back here. And we're glad that you can come to the foot of the cross today whether for the first time or for the umpteenth time. There is, folks, can I see the whites of your eyes, please? There is no other way. There's salvation in no other name except the name of Jesus. For there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who died on a cross. So you don't come to Barry, you don't come to RCF Christian Church, you come to the foot of the cross and you say, Jesus, please forgive me. And it is as simple as that. It's not, please forgive me, I'm going to be a good boy from now on. You can't be good enough. You can't do it yourself. It'll only be the grace of God. And you come to the foot of the cross and you, we don't have crosses in this building, we don't need effigies, we don't need statues, we don't need... You just come to Jesus. You say, Jesus, forgive me, I've been a fool, Jesus. I've let. The biggest fool is the person who keeps God out of their lives. I've been a fool. I may have been a rich fool, or a clever fool, I might be this or that fool. But I've been a fool because I've left you out of my life. Please, come into my life again today, Lord Jesus. I count, Philippians 3, 8, Paul says, I count all things as rubbish because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything up to now, Lord, has just been rubbish, but I'm coming to the foot of the cross and I'm saying, Jesus forgive me afresh see the cross seems insulting it seems irrelevant I'm not ashamed of the gospel said Paul it seems incredible that a man dying on a cross 2000 years ago means I can have sins forgiven it seems insulting that I'm calling you and me a sinner because I'm a sinner the same as you we're insulted when we're called sinners. It seems insignificant, this bunch of Christians. We don't seem to be much. It seems to be irrelevant. But it's the cross that brings us to salvation. And it's not an accident you're in church this morning. It's really not. On this midsummer's well, it's not midsummer, it's a summer holiday. It's not an accident that you're here. You needed to hear that Jesus loves you. You needed to hear. That the wisest thing you can do today is put your trust in Him. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Would you pray with me? Musicians, can you join me, please? I'd like to sing a song to finish. Now, I'm not appealing to your emotion this morning. I haven't asked the musicians up to play something soft in the background so you can get all gooey. I'm appealing to your intellect, to your mind, to your will. And I'm saying it is simply wise to get right with God. It's simply wise to say, Jesus, I've left you out of my life, and I want you to come into my life. And it is as simple as a prayer. It's the kind of prayer that I prayed when I was a teenager and gave my life to Jesus. You may use different words, but the sentiments are these. Lord Jesus, forgive me for the stuff that I've got involved with. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my foolishness. I simply ask you now to give me your wisdom, your forgiveness. Jesus, I want to get right with you today. I want to give you your rightful place in my life because I've let some other stuff get in the way. Will you come into my life? Jesus, will you forgive me? Will you help me to start all over again because of what you did on the cross? The cross is foolishness to those folks and my friends, but Lord, I know that it's only at the cross, it's only through Jesus that I can have forgiveness. Please, Answer my prayer. Is that you this morning? Anybody here getting right with their God? Anybody here saying, Jesus, you got me here because you wanted me. You wanted me back. You love me. Well, we're going to sing our final song. Just remain in prayer for a little moment. Keep your eyes closed. Somebody just want to say to God, that's me, please, Jesus, will you please accept me? I give my life back to you. Might help you to just indicate to the preacher while others are bowed in prayer, that's me, Barry, you were speaking to me, or God was speaking to me. Want to put your hand up say, that's me, Barry, please, will you? I want to get started with on this journey again. You may not want to respond to a preacher I'll give you the opportunity. Put your hand right up now and say, Barry, that's me. I need to get right with God. Does anybody want to do that this morning? Well, I'll give you the opportunity to come and be prayed for at the end of this service. Come sit on the front row and somebody will talk with you and pray with you, one of our elders. John, will you lead us in a final prayer? prayer prayer, prayer let